You're listening to a podcast from Hicksville Cornerstone Church. For more information about the church, visit us at hickscc.org. That's H-I-X-C-C.org. Thanks for listening. By going up to the chalkboard or the whiteboard, I forget which, it depended on what classroom I was in, and I would write history on the board. I know, very clever, right? Never been done before. But I would spell it wrong. I would use two S's. And of course, one student would always raise their hand. Hmm. Mr. Swanson, you spelled history wrong. And this is where I would get to one of the first concepts that I want to touch on today. And that is, is that history is his story. It's his story. And by his, I mean the God of the universe, the author of life, the creator. It's his Story. History does not revolve around us, even though we are very important to our Creator. It ultimately revolves around His glory, His majesty, His dominion, His kingdom. And when we read Scripture, we need to understand this fact. We need to understand this concept. And when we deal with heart-wrenching evil, in the world, we need to be reminded of this. When we deal with great joys and triumphs and success, we also need to be reminded of this. The next thing I would do is I would tap the chalkboard or the, uh, the whiteboard with like 70 little dots, like a madman, right? Just dots on the board. They're freaked out. They don't know what's happening. They're wondering, is this guy sane? And that was intentional, right? Mad scientists, teachers keep kids' attention, okay? So they're focused on me, and I put a bunch of dots on the board, and they're wondering, okay, AJ, what is happening? This is where I would introduce the second concept, which is so important for them to understand history. And that is history is like the stars in the night sky. If each star represents a person or a moment or an important thing they need to know, right? They would be quizzed, quizzed in my class on the stars. They need to know who Julius Caesar is. They need to know who Napoleon was. They needed to know when the transatlantic slave trade began. They needed to know that our country was founded in 1776. They needed to know the name of Hitler. They needed to know about the Holocaust. They need to know the stars of history. But just as important, if not more important, is understanding the constellations. You see, how the stars interact with each other is of great importance. Alone, they might shine bright, but together, they paint a picture that allows us to understand how and why something happened. And that gives us the ability to apply 
knowledge to our story in the midst of his story. Without linking moments to the big picture, which directly ties to the second concept, which is up on the board. Second important concept. A grasp of the big picture of his story allows us to make decisions in the midst of our story. We need to understand the constellations. We're going to see that played out today. The end of chapter 2 closes out this section. And while knowing what some of the individual stars are doing might be helpful to the narrative. Hence, if you remember last week's sermon, we looked at the individual stars, the characters that were taking place, the moments that were happening. Those are important. It is only when we see them in context of history that we can properly begin to allow them to speak to our lives and influence our thoughts and actions. Today's section of scripture has some of the most wonderful moments, and it also has some of the most terrifying and sad moments we find in scripture. And they're right there together. And so we have to deal with it. We have to figure out what he is telling us in the midst of his story so we can apply it to ours. I know typically we stand for the reading of God's word, but I want to do things a little differently today. One, I'm going to break up. Um, we're going to break up when I read the scripture. So instead of reading it all together, we're going to break it up into three different sections for the sake of time. And so if you're not up and down, up and down, up and down, um, I will let you stay see that. But we're going to be in Matthew 2. If you want to turn there, we're going to start Matthew 2, verse 13 and 15. Before I begin... I'm going to sip a cup, a little bit of my coffee because it's a 9 a.m. service, and then we're going to pray. Bow your heads, Father God. As we look at the text today, which can be seen as difficult, both on a kind of interpretation level and also from a just profound moral level, Lord, may even this section of Scripture speak to us. And may seeing history impact our story as we move through this world. Your son's name I pray. Amen. Matthew 2, 13 and 15. It's on the board. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph that they had departed. That's the Magi from last week. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said this. Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, I call my son. In this section of the text, we begin to see the echoes of Egypt. It was the prophet Hosea that first offered to us that last line in the text that was touched on. Out of Egypt I called my son. And when Hosea had originally proclaimed that line, it was referring to the Exodus. The Exodus, you remember, was when God acted to bring his people out of slavery and into freedom. That was what the Exodus was for. However, Matthew informs us that the words of the prophet had an echo. While it was first meant to point backwards, those same words would be used to point us forwards. Hear the echo. 
For by the life and death of Jesus, God would act to bring his people out of the slavery of sin and into freedom of righteousness. This is significant. Hear this. The Old Testament, the whole nation of Israel, was metaphorically referred to as the lowercase son of God. But now the title uppercase son of God is placed on a single person. And this points to the deeper credibility that the Old Testament constantly uses types and shadows that indicate a deeper fulfillment in later times. Hear the echo. Just as Egypt provided relief for the, for the, for from famine from Jacob and his sons, so too it provides Joseph and his family protection from an evil king's actions. Hear the echo. God raised up Moses to rescue Israel from bondage. He appointed Jesus to save the people from their sins. Hear the echo. A pharaoh emerged and endangered the infant Moses. So Herod, too, seeks to slay the child Jesus. Hear the echo. When Pharaoh later tried to kill Moses, he fled to a foreign country, Midian. And following the death of Pharaoh, he returned to Egypt in obedience to Yahweh's direction. Likewise, Jesus escapes death by fleeing to a foreign country, Egypt. And once Herod dies, he returns carrying out his calling. Hear the echo. And as Israel was redeemed by the Passover lamb, Jesus would give his life for a ransom for men. Matthew 20, 28. One of my goals, and it was intentional when we got together um, a year ago, one of my goals of the first year of preaching ministry that I really wanted to emphasize was that the overarching narrative of Scripture exists. While there are all these individual books by many different authors, they all echo one another. They all are linked to one another. The God of the universe in his sovereignty laid out this plan and used the free will of, of authors being led by the Spirit of God to where they constantly are interacting with one another. And it's beautiful. And I wanted you to see that, that even though we were in Ecclesiastes, if you remember at the beginning of the year, it constantly pointed forward to a Savior. Even when we're in Matthew, it constantly refers back to many of the Old Testament texts that have happened. And when we get to Hebrews next spring, we're going to see the exact same play. Hebrews is crazy because it's pointing back, it's pointing then to Jesus, and it's pointing forward. This overarching narrative of Scripture is beautiful. And so when you pick up your Bibles, I want you to see that. I want you to all. I want you to see, wow, this message is beautiful. Now we have to ask, right? This should lead us to why does God use echoes? Why does God use echoes? And here it's the first, I'll give you three reasons. The first is that it's just one of the easiest ways for people to learn and remember, right? I have elementary school teachers in this room. What are the main vehicles in which we teach our students to learn? One, repetition. We repeat over and over again the same things. And the second is through narrative, right? We know that if we tell a story, it's so much easier for a kid to understand the concept. Our God, in his wisdom, uses the exact same thing. Repetition and narrative. That's why it happens over and over and over again in Scripture. So these things can be buried in your hearts, and you can begin to see how the constellations are related to one another. It's beautiful. The second um, reason that God does this, um, I'll give you the good one here. The uh, moment is the third one. And here's the good one, right? We like echoes. We love them. Our favorite songs all have a chorus. It's an echo. We love echoes. We like family traditions. What's a family tradition? 
It's an echo from a previous year. We love them. We're drawn to them as a created people of a created God who uses echoes. It's like he built it into our DNA. He loves them. Here's the other moment. Here's the third reason why I think the Lord uses echoes. It typically takes us a few times to learn something important, doesn't it? It's never like the first time in the midst of my sin where I'm like, oh, I got it. No, it's like the third or fourth time when I'm finally confronted with it where I'm like, oh, oh, I was such an idiot. Right? And I need that echo because in our fallen state, if someone just told me one thing once, if someone called me to repentance only one time, I'd be doomed. We need it because of our fallen state. And God in His sovereignty gives us that. Another way that God speaks to us is in His use of contrasts, right? The obvious contrast in this whole section of Scripture is between Joseph and Herod, which is what I want to touch on here. While I'm touching on the stars, I want you to see the link in the constellation here, right? Joseph listens to the message from God and responds in haste. Meanwhile, Herod thinks he is God and responds in haste. Notice the two things, right? Look at what Joseph does. We've read it tons of years, and I think we get lost to it. An angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream, tells him to get up and go. And what does he do? Exactly that. Right? New country? No problem, God. Wife who had literally just given birth? Oh, no, that's fine. New baby? Yeah, we love traveling with new babies and hitting hotels in between here and Egypt on the back of a donkey. Sounds great. He just does it. He goes. Right? It's beautiful. And I think the motivation for him is that he simply seems to have an overwhelming love for his son and wife. And because of it, he listens to the calling of his heavenly father. And if we are honest with ourselves, I think we struggle to have faith like Joseph, right? We don't hear a calling from God and immediately respond. We don't. We tend to fight it. For us, right, like, when I, when I got called to ministry, I'll, you all can, you can hang out and have dinner. You can ask me. What was it like being called to ministry? I fought for a year, kicking and screaming. Lord, I'd rather do anything, anything, anything. The circus had an opening. I checked, okay? Like, anything. But I knew after fighting God for a year, this is what you're calling me to do. But didn't that like Joseph? I wish I did. More often than not, I much more respond like Herod, right? I'm convinced that I am God. And I respond in haste to my own decisions. Well, you might be thinking, well, Pastor Agent, it would be a lot more easy to respond to God if he sends an angel to me in a dream. <coughs> right? And I completely agree with you. If an angel showed up in my dreams, why well, I'd be freaked out, right? Nowhere in the scripture does an angel show up. And they're like, oh, that's sweet. Like, they're all panicked every time. I'd much more be willing to listen to a call of God if an angel appeared to me in dream. I agree with that. Here's my challenge, both to you and myself, right? Angel is just translated as messenger, right? That's where we get angelus from. 
It is simply one who conveys the message from God to his people on the Father's behalf. It's all angelus. The Father, in his wisdom, does not send us all individual messengers, but he clearly did send us all a message. And that is in the scriptures. Further, he uses the scriptures to give us a calling. It's clear there, right? For some of us, that calling is father. For some of us, that calling is mother. For some deacon, for some elder, for some evangelist. And for all of us, the title priest, 1 Peter 2, neighbor, Matthew 22, church member, 1 Corinthians 12, and ambassador, 2 Corinthians 5.20, are all applied to us. And honestly, if we were focused on just those callings in life, we could spend a lifetime of activity in honor of the Lord. But my heart, my heart yearns for growth in these areas. I wish these were natural things for me, but they're not. And I'm convinced if we both believed the message of God that is given to us in the Holy Scriptures and responded to the calling of God given to us in the Holy Scriptures, we would see drastic change in spaces of our lives. But we love our consumer Christianity. We love our, our Christianity without risks. We love our Christianity without trials and suffering. We love our Christianity without conflict. We love our passive Christianity. We love no risk. Imagine what the world would look like, or even our own community would look like, if we began to see our calling the way Joseph saw his. If it compelled us to action. I'm convinced it is not that our calling is too weak in the American church. It's that our faith is too weak. We are more prone to be cowards. We are more prone to seek ease. We are more prone to seek convenience. And when relationships are uncomfortable in the church, we more often seek the easier option than forgiveness and redemption, which are costly. We are not humble. We are proud. We are not dependent on God. We crave our own independence. We do not risk love for fear of rejection. And we do not respond to the calling of God. Because if we're honest with ourselves at the end of the day, we really don't put too much stock in the messenger, the scriptures. God help us. You see, if you're like me, you wake up most days, you look in the mirror as you get ready to say, and we are much more concerned about my story than we are his story. Herod was the same way. And I agree, probably much worse than anyone in here, right? None of us have, like, conspired to kill babies. Well, that I know of, right? But we're probably somewhere in between Joseph and Herod. And this is where we find ourselves in Matthew 2, 16 through 18. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious 
And they sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time he has ascertained from the wise men. Then he fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. See, Herod was a wannabe king. There's another echo here, right? Just as Moses was saved in the Nile when Pharaoh would kill all the young boys in Egypt, likewise Jesus is saved from a corrupt king as he murders all the children of Bethlehem. The three actions of Herod are used to fulfill the prophecy of Jeremiah of the mother of Judah weeping for her children. There are a lot of directions we could go here. And, and honestly, at some point, it will be necessary to park here for at least one whole Sunday. But we have to ask the question. We have to as we look at this text. Why does God allow these children to die? Why does God allow these children to die? If he knew they would, God is sovereign. This didn't like sneak up on him in the middle of the night. He wasn't like, Harry's doing what? He knew that this would happen. And while we could ask God why he allowed evil in a specific situation, it of course leads us to ask why God would allow evil in all situations. And the question of evil is a question that we, as Christians, at least need to begin to have an answer to, specifically to those that are skeptics and are seeking out truth. We have to begin to know how to answer this question for those who are seeking and searching God. Because this is one of the most common questions. Why would God, in His sovereignty, though, put this here? In scripture. Right? I mean the best event in the world. Just happened. The best one. Incarnation. The birth of Jesus. Is one of the most well known stories. Throughout the whole world. Much of the Old Testament text. Is given to point to such an event. And immediately following. God puts the baby massacre story in the text. Think about it. Like if I'm writing the Bible. Like this is a footnote. Many chapters later. Herod Antipas, whose dad killed a bunch of babies in Bethlehem, after the Magi Mites, sought after to behead John the Baptist. That's where I would have put it. Right? After four. But God puts it right after the most wonderful story in Scripture. Why? Because the God of the universe does not shy away from the existence of evil. God of the universe does not shy away from the existence of evil. We know from Scripture that God is sovereign. There is nothing in the universe that happens outside His watch. And we know from Scripture that God holds mankind responsible for His unique and individual actions. How that works in concert perfectly, we as limited creatures by space, time, and matter, will probably not understand it. Until, we, until sin has been removed from our vision that clouds us. Here's the thing, though. But God's answer to the existence of evil is not just an answer. It's a solution. 
And I would argue it's the only religious system that offers one. You see, the quote from the prophet Jeremiah sees the exile of the Jews to Babylon mainly in view. That's what he's saying. The original use of the quote sees the children of Israel being dragged from their homes in which they will not return because they're being dragged to a foreign land. Yes, here in Matthew, the quote is used to describe children of Israel dragged from their homes or they're never returning to their mothers. While the children of Israel in Jeremiah's day were separated by space, the children of Bethlehem were separated by death. But knowing where the prophecy comes from is essential to understanding it. For the prophecy does not lack hope. This is found in Jeremiah 31. And just before this quotation that we saw in the Gospel of Matthew, this is what it says right before Jeremiah 31, 15. This is what it says. He who scattered Israel will gather them. For the Lord will ransom Jacob. I will turn their mourning into gladness. That's what's happening just before this prophecy. And immediately following this prophecy is one of the most clear indications of all of Scripture in the Old Testament that there will be a new covenant made between God and His people by the work of His Son. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord's Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, their sin. And I will remember their sin no more. You see, Rachel's weeping would turn to joy. Rachel's weeping would turn to joy. And while children would be separated from their mothers and fathers by the wicked and evil actions of King Herod, the actions of the true king, King Jesus, his sacrificial death on the cross, his overcoming death by resurrection, and the promise of the same resurrection to those that follow him will allow those children and their parents to be together for all of eternity. He overcomes King Herod's sin, just as he overcomes ours. You see, King Herod tried to hijack the story of God. It was all about how he felt in the moment. And then he commits evil, which is very similar to our own thought patterns when we commit evil. You see, we try to hijack the story of God and our sin. It's all about our story. It's all about our star in the sky. It's all about self-esteem, self-identity, self-comfort. We preach things like, get yours and find your happiness. Which if I hear one more person say, find your happiness, um, help, pray for me on that, okay? <laughs> I've like, heard it so much this week. I'm like, are we for real? Are we for real? Hitler tried to find his happiness too. Y'all consider that? When the whole time, if we would just step back and see the constellations, if we would see the story of God in the midst of the evil of mankind, that we would know that hope has come and hope has overcome. And his name is Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. Matthew 19, sorry, 2, 19 to 23. We're going to go to the end here. 
But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. See the echo again? That's a really close echo. For those who sought the child's life were dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judah in the place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went to live in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Here we begin to see the echoes of Nazareth. We again see Joseph's faith on display. An angel, a messenger, appears to him, uses very similar language, and he returns home. But this is not the place he thought was going, right? He returned home, but he had one destination in mind, and God sent him to another. How often, I mean, I'm sure I'm not the only one living here. How often has that happened in life with you? He had no intention of going to Nazareth until the angel spoke the words. And now we know from extra-biblical extra accounts that Archelaus was a bad dude. Like, he killed 3,000 Jews at Passover to inaugurate his reign in Jerusalem. So my guess is Joseph heard that story and was like, uh, I don't want to go anywhere near him. And sure enough, the angel confirmed that suspicion and he sent him elsewhere. But why did God want Jesus to be a Nazarene? Now, there's a lot of different options here, all of which could be valid at the same time. So I'll give you the options um, and why it's important. First, we need to understand something. The text in Matthew here is vague. Okay, every time so far he has said, spoken by the prophet beforehand, he's got a particular verse in mind. He gives it to us right after. But here, we see for the first time that he uses the term prophet, and he puts it in plural. There's an S on it in English, right? Spoken by the prophets, that he would become a Nazarene. Here's the issue. He doesn't give us the two texts that he's referring to. So we're left to try to guess where he's talking about in the Old Testament, what he means. Okay? So here are some of the options. Again, they could all work in concert with one another. It might be one of them. It might be all three. It might be a fourth one that I'm not aware of. Right? First, though, is the reference to the humility of Christ. Think about it. The Savior of the world would come from a nondescript little village off by the wayside. Many of first century historians listed the cities in Galilee. Right? Half of them don't even include Nazareth on the list. That's how insignificant it is. Right? It's over there. There's a couple people. And we know from the rest of the text that it was held in contempt by both the Gentiles and the Jews. No one likes the place. And that's where the Savior of the world came from. Second. It references the consecration of Christ. The consecration of Christ. To be a Nazarite, to be a Nazarene, was a vow of abstinence from wine and the use of a razor. So laws governing the conduct of us, a Nazarene are found in number six, where the word Nazir is defined as a consecrated person. Okay, well you have to ask, what, what is a consecrated person? We don't use that language today, right? What is a consecrated person? 
a person set aside for a higher purpose. Right? We see this too with Manoah's wife in the book of Judges when they are told Samson is to be a Nazir. Right? He, he keeps his hair long. He's not supposed to touch wine. Set apart from God at birth. Hannah in the book of Samuel at the very beginning, remember she can't have kids, but she promises, Lord, if you give me a son, I'll dedicate him to you. And she actually drops him off at the temple pretty early and lives there. Right? She infers the same Nazir imagery. Likewise, Jesus is set apart for a purpose. The concept to the Jew would be very much in mind, and they would understand it when they read this writing. First century Jew, this makes perfect sense to them. She's already consecrated and set aside for a purpose. Third, it references Christ's connection with David. Okay? So, if you've not been introduced to this topic, it, it, it's a little bit longer, and I apologize that I only have a little bit of time for it. <coughs> phonetics in Hebrew literature is very common. What do I mean by phonetics? Many times, words that sound alike are used by an author to make a connection. I actually did it at the very beginning of this sermon. His story and his story. Right? I made the connection between history and his, his, his story. And it was the same way within the Hebrew language, where authors would make a collection by alluding to the phonetics. Possibly here he's alluding to Isaiah 11. 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch, that's the word here that we're going to look at, from its roots shall bear fruit. Branch here. In the Hebrew, it's Nazir, which is very close to Nazir. So while Isaiah is speaking of David, Matthew is potentially also linking the branch to Christ. And if this is the case, it informs an inclusio in the first two chapters of Matthew. What do I mean by that? It creates bookends. Matthew opens up the opening of his text before he gets into the life of Christ. Mentioning the line of David, the branch of David, and he ends the whole section by what? Mentioning the branch of David. This is one of those reasons why even non-Christian authors understand that the book of Matthew is one of the most brilliant books ever written. He does this all the time. So we see it here in the text. Which ironically is an echo to the last chapter of the Bible. What do we see in Revelation 22? I, Jesus. I've sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. It's the exact same language imagery. So what does this have to do with your story? How does this relate to our story? We've already mentioned some ways in the second point. Have you responded to the calling of God in your life? Have you heard the message given to us in Scripture and been compelled to give your life in a way that contributes to His story? Have you surrendered your life to Christ? Have you been born again? You see, that is the beautiful purpose of the call of God to us. We spend our lives trying to find our identity, find our purpose. And as I mentioned last week, right, we tend to wait for our Blues Brothers moment. We're waiting for a light to shine down from heaven. Or we're waiting for an angel to appear in a dream. Instead of just looking at the message that God has already given us. We'd rather have a much more profound supernatural experience 
than just trust the book? God, in his love for you, desires for you to echo the life of his son. There's that echo again. In the way you love your neighbor, in the way you love those that you're at enmity with, in the way you seek peace, in the way you expand his kingdom, we are, be, we are to be conformed to the image of Jesus. That's what he calls us to do through his messenger, his message. Romans 8, 29. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The God of the universe, this is crazy, the God of the universe wants to use you for his glory. And in the process, bring you everything you have ever, ever hoped for. The peace you hoped for. The satisfaction you hoped for. The purpose you hoped for. And while, we'll, while we look for all those things in all the wrong places as we write our own story, it is offered to us as we join the constellation of believers and we continue to write his story. Child, child, you are not insignificant. Child of God, you are not worthless. Child of God, you are not without hope and suffering. For Jesus uses the evil we, ever, we perpetrate to our own, to his own end. For by the Son of God, who have been offered the right to become a child of God. This Christmas, if you have not accepted the free gift of the Bethlehem King, the Nazarene, then accept him today. By faith, cling to his offer of forgiveness, and by faith, see your story in the light of history. For the heavens declare the glory of God. And we're invited into the same glory. God, you're